Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by Exabel. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I speak to Michael Watson, former Managing Director in Equities Engineering at Citadel and recent founder of Chained Metrics. In our conversation, Michael and I talk about the engineering challenges faced by a major hedge fund trying to remain competitive with alternative data, before then going on to explore his new project, which sees him moving company KPIs onto the blockchain. Separately, I will be speaking at the HFM European Quant Summit on Wednesday the 17th of November alongside Rani Paputri as we discuss acquiring and combining alternative data sets. Michael, I think, why don't we begin, obviously everyone knows what Citadel is, but why don't we begin just by talking a little bit about what Chain Metrics is and then and then perhaps coming to it in detail later on. But why don't you give me a quick precede version of, of what Chain Metrics is as a, as a kind of taster for, for what's to come? Sure. So I want to build the Bloomberg of the blockchain and I'm starting with putting company financials on the blockchain and creating predictive markets on the most important KPIs for each company going into an earnings event. Okay. I think that creates more questions than it that it, that it answers in a way. So um, we need to, uh, we'll definitely be coming back to that. But let us go back, um, Michael, because I think this is the Alternative Data Podcast, and um, you have had a lot of direct experience um, in your career with alternative data. Um, as I say, then until until very recently, you were you were you were employed by Citadel. Can we um, go back to uh, how did you come across alternative data as a as a concept? So yeah, it all started when I joined Citadel back in two thousand fifteen when I wasn't even planning on going into finance. Economics was a passion of mine in college, but it wasn't necessarily the direction that I was obviously taking as a like late 20s, super passionate Python programmer. But I flew out to Chicago, met the team, and kind of fell in love with the way that you can use information, technology, software, in financial markets to be able to understand the world around us in very interesting ways and have a, a really good business model that can help you monetize that. And yeah. Had you had you in any way, I'm, and it's a maybe a slightly unfair question, but I've previously had Jeff Ryan on this on this podcast, and he had been, I mean, an R programmer to to kind of such a degree where he had kind of written half the libraries for for using R in finance, and then Citadel spotted him. I, you did you did you have anything like that in Python in terms of having that having that kind of exposure or was it you were just a really good Python developer and they recognized it in an interview? Yeah, I mean, like Jeff is kind of league in the zone a little bit within the R space, mm. um, and so I don't think I would I would be able to say that I was a Python equivalent to what Jeff had done within R, but it was something that I spent eight hours a day on for half a decade. Whenever I would go out to like a social gathering one way or another, I would find a way to start talking about Python. And <laughs> uh, it just became a passion into an obsession into one of the biggest catalysts of my success that I would say over my career from like a specific skill set that I always rely on. Do you know what, Michael, just quickly, because I have had, as I said, Jeff, and I've also had Jonathan Regenstein from Truer Securities, who's another massive R evangelist. I have been looking for an opportunity to reset the balance a little bit. Could you just explain why uh, Python is better than R quickly, please? 
uh, I, I don't necessarily want to go into this better or worse, but I would say that the fl the diversity of things that you can do with Python, obviously strong in the data science space, but from managing infrastructure, web services, being able to work on micro devices with MicroPython, being able to work in large scale data centers, being able to use it in embedded systems. The diversity of problems that you can solve with something at Python uh, allows for a little bit more flexibility when creating more like holistic solutions they maybe R might, but R solves a lot of those problems too. But it's in terms of it's 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 bread and butter is, is primarily within the the data science space. Got it. Cool. I think that's enough. So, um, so Michael, as you're saying, you would you joined um, Citadel, and um, unusually for this podcast, actually, which is which is a real a very exciting thing for me. You're you're um a, you're, you've you've kind of been part of this world very much from an engineering side rather than perhaps a portfolio management or, or kind of data scout or, or or the various things that I've had um so you've so you've kind of come up through the through the engineering side of of of, of Citadel is it possible Michael to talk a little bit about the way the kind of texture of alternative data changed over the time that you're talking about you've already mentioned kind of just the sheer size of the data sets that you had to be dealing with but was there was there a, a, a kind of a rapid increase in sophistication and um, when you say size is it kind of number of columns and and uh, is it is it size in all directions like what what is uh, can you can you perhaps talk it all around the kind of explosion if if that's if that's what it was um, i mean in... number of, like what like i think that excel like before 20 like before like office 365 it would it could hold like what a hundred thousand rows then it maybe got up to like a million rows but when you start dealing with 20 100 billion rows you're talking about four or five orders of magnitude more than what like anything that you would do in a microsoft office application and for a lot of like servers wouldn't be able to fit most of that in memory so when you start out to distributing data sets to perform computation across a cluster, that's just a very different skill set than a lot of people had in the early 2010s. And most of that, most of those skill sets were primarily within traditional tech. There's obviously exceptions, but um, with all of the funds that are looking at data that in and of itself might be relatively simple to understand, but the size and the scale and like the the speed at which that gets priced into the market becomes very very rapid that you need to have like a machine that can handle all of this information on a scalable way ready for market open the signals are already there um and it's it's available every single day for uh, an investment team that is very reliant on on the quality of this information so it's a combination of the size but also the need for reliability and accuracy and consistency. And when you kind of combine all of those together, it's you need more of an industrial machine, more so than just like a, a data scientist and engineer hacking on something and occasionally coming up with a piece of insight. It needs to be something that's ready 24 seven, 365, every market open, no exceptions. And that just adds a lot more types of problems. I'm sure. So what you're describing really is a kind of revolution in in the type of problem that a, that a company like Citadel is is dealing with. And in a way, it's it's a huge amount of new skills and new knowledge, which is cutting edge kind of in the whole market, which is required. And being Citadel, 
you have to be the best in the world at it kind of overnight because of the competition in the in 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 terms of the markets that they are that they are covering does that mean that um if you're someone like citadel how do you how do you bring in the best in the world at this new you know hadoop and spark are, are kind of their new tools which everyone's learning at once are you how are you, what is the process if you're an institution like that of bringing in the that that knowledge and that information into a into a into a company because presumably the guys who have been doing it for 30 years i don't know is it are they learning these new tricks or are you, are you having to get in the the, the young because they've been trained at it in university or, or or how is it coming about how is it spreading totally uh i think one of the things with that spark really did is it made big data accessible especially for anybody that was familiar with python or scala uh, the the APIs that the Spark team created enabled anybody that understood Python, for example, to interact with incredibly large data sets in a pretty easy way. Now, like, there's a lot of tuning that you had to do for the JVM that, especially in the early days, was pretty tricky. But it at least allowed somebody to interact with a cluster for the first time in a way that was intuitive. When the Spark team then came out with uh, Spark SQL and the data frame API, Python and Scala had a um, comparable performance uh, output. And so like now you have people that understood data frames and pandas were able to use similar types of computation in, in a cluster. So that enabled a much broader set of users to be able to come in and interact with data at scale than you would have gotten when it was primarily just a Java-based environment that you got with Hadoop. And I think that that allowed, like, a, like that in and of itself allowed a new set of people to kind of get into the space. And Python was a, a language that's been in finance for a long time. Like Wes mm. McKinney was, he came from finance and. Mm. You have a lot of these, these, these Python developers that were able to, to leverage what the open source community was doing. At the same time, one of the things that like I've, I've recruited a ton within the space over the years is that you need engineers that see technology as a means to an end and not necessarily the end in itself when they're working for any company whose primary product is not the technology itself. And it's like that that slight tweak in perspective is what I've seen to differentiate engineers that work within finance or, or any company where the primary product of monetization isn't the technology itself uh, the, are the ones that are most successful because they're able to truly see from the eyes of the business and how they're actually trying to make money, in which case it's it's us, it's having at least in the fundamental strategy of having deep fundamental expertise of the names within our coverage space and being able to understand what names are over or undervalued relative to their peer set. And an engineer that really can get that, they at least understand that at a slightly below surface level is then able to design and produce technology solutions with that in mind in a way that's going to be like, at the end of the day, help us make more money and be more effective at solving problems and somebody that's just focusing on the technology for technology's sake. So if you can go after people that are engineers that are talented, but also truly interested in finance, 
Yeah. That is, that's the, really the sweet spot. And I think um, that's where I was focused. And I think that that's like, in order to be successful recruiting in that space, it's, it's really what you need to continue to, to push on. It's a step across because data engineering by its by itself is a kind of it's a step into the engine room, isn't it? It's it's a step further away from the shop floor. Um, and so the people, you know, data scientists have increasingly a challenge has been getting data scientists interested and, and kind of familiar with the, the kind of portfolio management rules and getting them to talk to each other. But the data engineer is kind of a step behind the data scientists. And so they're a step deeper into the data and further away from the use case. So by definition, almost it's going to be a it's going to be a harder thing to find, you know, that that interested data engineer because because they are kind of located further away. Not to interrupt that, but I love that analogy where you're saying that it's important for the data scientist to get closer to the portfolio management team to be able to truly understand what are they like trying to forecast and understand so they can better solve their problems. The messaging was always the exact same for a data engineer to get closer to the PM to be able to better understand their problems. And so the the natural tendency is for the data engineer to be behind the scenes doing the plumbing work but they have a very unique skill set and unique insight into what's actually happening within the data that if they understand the problems that we're trying to solve from a business perspective they can start seeing around corners they can start coming up solutions that aren't given to them by a data scientist trying to interpret a solution to a problem, they're able to natively understand that themselves. So as you start getting more integration, not only between the PM and the data scientist, but also the data engineer and the data scientist, the data engineer and the PM, and you don't necessarily need to have three different roles. Like that can be the data engineering and software development skill set can be the same skill set that a data scientist has that for a lot of for an evolutionary type of team dynamic can also be a skill set that, that a portfolio manager and a analyst can have and i think like the teams that are going to be truly exceptional over the next 10 years are teams that can really integrate those three skill sets in a well-honed well-managed process i think you see a little bit of that I think that there's still a lot of silos in terms of what those three skills are. But uh, that is, from my perspective, the way of the future and the way that it plays out. It can go, I don't necessarily have a crystal ball, but the skill sets of a data engineer will be more common in data scientists. The skill sets of a portfolio manager will be more common in a data engineer. The skill sets of a data scientist can be more co uh, common with a, with a PM. So... All of those things I see blending together. I've heard similar before. And as I say, I'm more often hearing the kind of what we need is someone who understands both the finance and the data science. So the engineering is just an added part of that. And it completely makes sense. If you're Citadel and your point is making money in the markets, then you want everyone to understand making money in the markets and and, and be pulling in that in that same direction that the company is pulling. Um, more broadly, and just to break it down, well, I say more broadly, actually, perhaps more specifically, just to break it down to the kind of day to day level. What does that mean for because data engineering is um, is in many ways the same job if you're working for a big hedge fund versus working for a, a you know, a big record company? 
what is what what is it that will will differentiate what your your kind of what's different about being a data engineer for someone like Citadel versus that all the other data engineers in the world wouldn't recognize? So I'd say a couple of things. One diversity of data that if you're working in a investment organization that's truly trading in, in global equity markets and like some organizations are going to trade to across asset classes. So they're not even just looking at equities. But if you look at equity markets, there's retail, there's technology, there's industrial, there's healthcare, there's financial. Each one of those separate segments has different types of data. Some can be geolocation, some can be credit card spend, some can really benefit from satellite imagery, some can benefit from uh, high fidelity web scrapes. The some can develop, some can really benefit from uh, sensor data, from machinery. The the diversity of types of data that you work with when you're working in the alternative data space as an engineer within financial markets is going to be um, more diverse than than any other industry that you would get in. I, I think also the way that you directly use data to monetize is you is not unique to finance and, and alternative and investment strategies but i it, it is you it is um something that i think sets it apart if you're doing data engineering for ads at google like you're close to the monetization process but if you're working on an optimization of a internal process and that process is two to three steps removed from the actual revenue generating model of a business. Being involved in that data engineering space, you're, you're a little bit removed from how the company monetizes that data. In the case of financial services and investing, the data that you're using is being, is, is being, it's being used to forecast out a, some, something about the world that is going to be used to monetize an investment decision, using an investment strategy and in working with data that is very close to the revenue generating model of any business is the type of data that you want to be working because that means it's, it's the most valuable type of data that, that the organization has and you want to be part of that value proposition. So I think it's the, the combination of diversity and very closely tied to the revenue model that makes it a little bit more interesting for me. Cool. Um, you've got a, there are, all sort, there are all sorts of, as you say, huge diversity in the alternative data space in terms of different types of data sets you can have. And to put it really, you know, basically, um, then you've got some of the cleanest data sets, which perhaps, I mean, we could say credit card transactions are often a little bit better ordered and, and um, you know, cleaner. Um, and then at the other end, you've got data sets which are a little bit more, um, uh, hypothetical as to whether they where the value is and, and you have to do an awful lot of work to map them to stock prices or KPIs or, or, or whatever. Um, did you prefer working on the, the easier ones or the, or the harder ones? And what can you maybe talk about what the what the hardest one <laughs> that you worked on or worked with um, in your in your time? Working with data that's messy is interesting if you know what the end game is. If you understand what the end game is of a messy data set and 
realize what the potential of that insight could be and how you would monetize it within the market, searching for the needle in the haystack and cleaning out data so it can create a better signal or forecast is something that makes it worthwhile. Like you're the, the grind and the blood, sweat and tears that can go into curating a, a data set from a very messy piece of bytes to a clean, organized like data model that's going to be used for producing very unique insight can be satisfying if you know what the end game is. And so one of the things that I always want an engineer to know is what is the KPI that you're trying to forecast? What are the specific tickers that this matters for? And why does the KPI even matter for that ticker? If there's anybody that's abstracted away from a problem so much that they don't understand those three questions and more importantly, have an answer to it, they're going to have no interest in dealing with messy data. But if they, if they understand the end game, that is a prerequisite in order to be successful working with messy data. But, um, can you, can you, um, and I'm not, I don't particularly want to talk about Citadel specifically, but do you think there would be a way in a hypothetical hedge fund perhaps to, um, to incentivize engineers, um, and perhaps link their own bonuses to the data sets that they work on or the particular, you know, value that they uncover in their, in their work in, in terms of, and that would really help focus the mind towards that towards that problem that you're you're talking about in terms of seeing what it's going to be for because if you can see um the end usage then you can see them it all the way through to your wallet then that's going to help with motivation even more it is but there's also an l i i i don't disagree with that. i don't think anybody would argue that um that is inherently not a good thing to have is getting compensated for that one of the problems is, is is attribution to an individual data set and whether or not that data set is going to help make money in, in an investing strategy. And the majority of the data sets that you work with, are not. that's not going to be the case. So just because you're working really hard on a data set, there's a great thesis behind it doesn't actually mean that it's going to boil all the way down to a position, well-constructed portfolio, and then the catalyst and timing are right around that, that you're able to monetize it. So there could be some great engineering work done that doesn't ultimately make anyone money. And that, that, that adds a lot of challenge to having some sort of attribution associated to, to some of that work that goes all the way down to the engineering level. But with that said, I, 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 I have seen benefits of having an engineer that's worked closely with the desk, understand what is the thesis, know when a position is put on, feel like they have skin in the game that if that, if, for example, that data set that they're working on is running every single day, there's money on the table behind that data, that they are going to naturally wake up at six o'clock in the morning before the market opens and make sure everything is running smoothly without anyone asking them to, because they know that there's money on the line that's dependent upon them. And so creating some sort of dynamic where everyone on the team is involved or at least has some exposure 
to the intensity and the level of almost respect that you have to have for a portfolio when there's true money on the line is something that adds um, value, like an intensity and focus for everyone that's involved in the investment process. Michael, I don't know if you're a soccer fan, but it strikes me that in this process, the engineer is is similar to the role of the goalkeeper in that people really notice when it when the when it goes wrong. You know, you don't get that much credit for all the saves you've made, but you you will often get the, you know, you'll get the rollicking for when when the ball's let in or or you know they'll they'll notice the mistakes. Do you feel is that is that does that feel familiar and and do or, and generally do you feel engineers get the credit they deserve for the 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 role that they the role that they provide that that they play in the process in in kind of all ways. I would say that that is a, for a really good data engineering organization, what you describe is the first phase in an evolution for what a great engineering organization looks like when it comes to finance. So the phase zero, when a company first goes into the technology evolution, when it comes to fundamental investing, uh, is that yes, the engineer becomes the defense. And the PM already has a thesis. They hire their first data scientist. And then they say, okay, the next step is we need an engineer that can kind of deal with all the shit that we've produced. And then you kind of throw that over the fence to a technologist. And then they play the role of goalie. And I think that any organization that's gone through a technology evolution within investing over the last 10 to 15 years has gone through that phase zero. There's no way that I think that you can skip that phase if you have an existing business model that doesn't involve the engineering. Um, but then the engineering team also, for, for in, in fairness, doesn't understand the business of the investing strategy or the, the data science team. So all they know how to do is p play defense. A lot of times you get an engineer that thinks that they have they, they, the watch Jim Cramer on CNBC or they'll go on Wall Street bets and they have like a really good understanding of, uh, of investing, but like there's still a huge, huge gap there. Mm. Um, but over the years, when you start getting more engineers that truly understand the investing strategy, they understand what are the KPIs and the forecasting model of a data scientist and a lot of the nuance there, the goal is to transition from defense onto offense. And when you can get an engineering team to get, get solid defense, protect the goal, everything is taking control over there. And you can start spending some of your uh, brain cycles on how do I get on offense and build on a strategy. And sometimes that could take weeks, quarters, months, or years, but a really good engineering team needs to have a strategy to get from defense onto offense. And for a lot of times that I would start with asking engineers, the three questions I had mentioned earlier, what are the tickers that your data matters for? What are the KPIs that you're trying to better understand? And lastly, why are those KPIs important for that ticker? And answering those questions is part of a psychological switch that needs to happen in order for an engineer to go from defense playing goalie to start moving up to the midfield. And I haven't really seen a lot of engineers move all the way up to a striker role but there's nothing in my mind that that is stopping me from thinking that that will happen. Um, and so like, I'm, I can't wait to see like what a lot of the engineers that are kind of coming up through pipelines right now within companies like my former employer can help transform into once they become strikers in mm -hmm. investment teams. And, and that will happen. And I, I'm just super excited to 
to kind of follow along as that happens. But you think they're sufficiently appreciated for the current role that they are they are providing in the process. They're not the forgotten men um, who keep the show on the road and are ultimately, you know, they're not they're not getting the high fives when when everything goes right. Uh, in any any sort of like structurally large investment organization, that there's people at the tip of the spear, which are going to be your PM, your analyst, um, and then like associates, RAs on the team. And, but there's also like this huge support system that um, help enable them to be successful. And the further you kind of get along that kind of value proposition to support team, whether it's working in risk or working in engineering or even in some data science organizations or working in like portfolio finance or back office, that it can get a little bit tricky for all of those different pieces to get all of like the high fives and the appreciation. I think that's why culture is so important within larger financial organizations so that that's never forgotten. Um, but I do think that specifically engineering uh, within some of your larger investment uh, platforms is working its way up in the value chain and getting more and more recognition every year. Um, mm -hmm. But that's also the, it's the engineering organization's responsibility to climb that value chain themselves like no one's going to hand them no one's just going to come up give them a hug a high five you guys are doing awesome without them actually providing more value than they're getting recognition for so they like it's up it's up to engineering organizations to really try to hone in and understand how you make money how we manage risk how we're driving operational efficiencies figure that out for themselves uh and do the work to move up that value chain before organizations just give them high fives for making the same level of contribution as is a high performing analyst because that's just not going to happen for free sure speaking of um moving up the value chain um you am i were you the youngest managing director or the fastest promoted managing director what was your what was your claim to fame yeah i think when i left um i didn't actually like look across the board but i would have been probably the youngest uh managing director within the technology vertical but i think for the the funds and enterprise but i'd have to i'll go back and verify that but yeah i um i started as an individual contributor software engineer for about five years worked primarily within the fundamental equity strategy and then got a chance actually within the alternative data space to manage a team that was really focusing on one of on, on the core alternative data products then started working with a, a concept that I built out called the business data engineer, where you have engineers kind of embedded with a business and working closely with a desk to truly understand and more closely with a data scientist team to, to really understand what are the questions that they're asking? What are the problems that they're solving and uh, in, in managing the evolution of what that looked like? Because um, it went through a lot of changes over the course of, uh, of my time. Uh, while I was with the team and then uh, had like a brief stint where I moved out to Hong Kong, helped build out the engineering organization for APAC, which was headquartered in Hong Kong at the time. So I did a ton of hiring over there, uh, then came back to the U.S. and ran enterprise data for Citadel. So that's a um, that's essentially our security master, entity master, and pricing master that was used for both Citadel Securities and Citadel the Hedge Fund. Essentially, every, all of your big trading firms or um, banks have a unique identifier for each tradable instrument that maps to 
identifiers on exchanges, maps to what exchanges those securities can trade on, schedules for um, future like payments or different types of expiration information, uh, whether it's an option. There's a whole period. There's a whole series of uh, metadata associated with tradable instruments, and there's a lot of engineering work that goes behind that. And then most recently, I was the head of all of the proprietary technology and software that we developed for the fundamental equities businesses. So Surveyor Capital, Ashler Capital, Global Equities for the for the hedge fund side. And so um, take me onwards. So um, you reached the end of uh, so how what how did how is the next chapter in your totally so like honestly I had an absolute blast working at Citadel. It was probably it was the most growth that I had over a seven year period by I want to say an order of magnitude, but at least multiple at least multiples Um, and. I feel it's, I feel everything at Citadel is by an order of magnitude, isn't it? It's yeah, honestly, it's uh, the way it works. It's such a concentration of talent, passion, mm. expertise, uh, and intensity that it's not for everybody. And I I have a lot of friends that are really smart people, really successful. That it just wouldn't be a culture that they would have thrived in. But there are some personality types where they love that intensity they they're always working whether they want to be or not it's just in their blood and for me that's it it mirrored like who i am and how i like just operate and think and grind and um it was it was it was it was incredibly rewarding and i i i i owe a lot of my like growth uh, to them. But like, I also had a wager with a data scientist I used to, to work with. His name was Max. And it was that eventually these KPIs that are being forecasted, there will be a marketplace around them where a investor doesn't need to go to the equity in order to monetize their idea. And it was early stages of the blockchain, but like my thesis was like, it will probably eventually be created on the blockchain. Just could be easy to scale out. And then year after year went by and no one ever created it. Um, and until like this year, when I see a lot of really interesting developments happening within both the blockchain space, but as well as the predictive market space that I figured if I don't create this now, somebody else is probably going to be right on my tails and I'm going to kick myself for, for not actually going on and building it. So I made a decision at the beginning of this year that I think this is the time when I want to go out and branch out and, and do my own thing and take some of the learnings that I've been able to acquire over the years and apply them for myself. And so I started about two and a half months ago building out chain metrics and we had just did a beta release for um, a lot of people in my network just yesterday, actually. So now I'm kind of iterating on what the future of that looks like. Fantastic. So let's get to grips with it. So the idea is that you can take the, um, so the KPIs of companies, which are released, announced in their their earnings releases every, every quarter. Um, so things like sales or revenue or, or whatever, um, those things are can be predicted. That's what a large of a large number of people in in uh, in asset management are trying to do. Um, and uh, consensus will think that sales is going to be such and such, 
and um, it comes in and it is higher than such and such, which means that had you bought it, uh, bought the stock before the announcement, then you would have made money. And if if you'd sold it before the announcement, then you would have lost money. Um, and so what you are, what your business does is uh, encode the ability to make those calls into the blockchain to kind of, I mean, is it a kind of bookies that your initial initial um, uh, business is kind of it's it's a it's a betting market which allows you to bet. You think you've got a good feel on it. You think you've got a good, good feel on it. You've often got some kind of data to prove it. You know, you're, uh, there'll be various reasons why you've got that feel on it. But um, the the blockchain aspect allows it to be completely automated and completely predictable and completely kind of reliable as a as a process. Is that a is that a fair summary? Yeah, I think you you captured a lot of it. I don't consider it as much as the the bookie element of it where it's it's more of a bet. I think it's a it's a way that you manage risk and think about future outcomes and want to um, want to trade on your unique perspective of what that's going to be. Um, but yeah, I think you, I think you summarized it incredibly well. Thank you very much. Um, but so what is, so are you helping people at all and come to their decisions? Are you, are you, um, or so somebody will have, uh, you are, you're literally providing a market rather than providing the tools with which to make these decisions. It's, it's much more the ability to, to make the money or lose the money, uh, depending on if you've got, if you've got a, if you've got a, you know, if you've got an edge or not. Exactly. And to, to go one layer down, I think that in order for any predictive market to be effective, there needs to be high quality, accurate, reliable data that is used to reference when determining the outcome and having that data infrastructure and that data platform is necessary to create any sort of market on top of data, whether the data is KPIs for companies or it's weather data, or it is um, real estate data, advertising data, social data, when data is on, when, when there's a contract that's on the blockchain, there is no middleman arbitrator that is determining the outcome. There is no govern. There, there is no um, organization that's going to collectively like be a central party to arbitrate. The data is on the blockchain. And when it's there, these con like a contract executes without anybody getting involved. And so the, the necessity for accurate, always right data is paramount. And so that's, that's like the underlying thesis, the area that I'm most interested in is getting the data that is driving financial markets on chain in a reliable, accurate way to facilitate platforms like chain metrics that I'm building right now to be able to run efficiently, effectively, and transform a lot of the traditional like financial markets and ways that you go about monetizing KPI forecasting so this is so this is just the beginning is what you're saying once we've got those KPIs on the blockchain and it is you know it's kind of indelible and 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 
as you say, you don't need a trusted figure in the middle. It's 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 all the all the all the good stuff that the blockchain offers. Then you can start building a whole kind of ecosystem on top of it. And people within the alternative data space should should there is should prick up because this is all these potential uses. It almost it almost creates a kind of a shadow alternative data world because it's 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 all being created within kind of on the blockchain and 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 for 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 the users the users therein um one question is uh where do you get your kpis from are you are you buying someone like a data from someone like Factset, or are you are you scraping it from from um from these companies direct where where is what's the mechanism to get the to get the kpis um so right now i'm working with like i'm, I'm pulling from a couple different sources uh to be able to identify what are the three most important kpis i don't necessarily want to say a specific vendor um, cause I'm not really using one vendor right now, but I'm going after like, what are the three most important KPIs per, um, company and creating a future prediction market on that. After that has been announced, I'll pull down from either Edgar or the, um, the IR website for the, the company filings, um, verify that against a couple different sources and then publish that to the chain. And then once that's uh, gone through like an internal promotion process from staged to actually on the chain, it's then referenceable within smart contracts. So there's multiple different QA checks that I have in place before the data is actually published to the chain so that I'm so that users can be confident in the integrity and accuracy of that data once it's been it's been pushed out. Are there any drawbacks to to the kind of indelibility of it being on the chain? I mean, if a if a company actually revises a KPI or comes back and says, "Oh no, we 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 printed the wrong thing," sorry, and a day later they've changed it, is it is there does that create problems that you've already kind of you know chiseled it into the into the chain on the first day? You can you can go and kind of change it afterwards, can you? Totally, and then like you can have metrics on the. It depends on like the way that you would structure a contract. You could solve for both of those, so. In the first scenario, let's say a company revises, you could choose not to publish the data on chain for a period of time after the announcement. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, like, you don't actually get paid out on this predictive market until this period of time has passed uh, when data hasn't been uh, revised in that time period. Alternatively, you could have two, you could have two different contracts, one on the initial release value and another on a uh, confirmed value at some future time period. Um, And lastly, depending on how you go about creating a liquidity, um, how you go about creating liquidity within the chain, you could lock up value temporarily so that, um, if there was a revision that there's some amount of money that's still in escrow that could pay out a future that they could, they could handle payouts if there was some sort of revision. We're working through that right now, but we're also working on that naive approach that the contracts are based off what the company reports at earnings. And if there is a revision that's not currently taken into consideration, but there's a lot of different things you can do there that I think are going to be unique to the space. It's an edge case, really. Anyway, you know, it's the, normally they they kind of hit it, um, and so in terms of so are you so you talked you kind of hinted at the potential kind of wider alternative data 
well the the wider ecosystem which could grow from this can you can you talk around some of those kind of potential future future worlds you envision a little bit i think after spending around 200 150 to 200 hours doing development within solidity that there's not a large different from a difference from a developer perspective between development within the Ethereum virtual machine versus development in Python, JavaScript, other object-oriented or functional languages. But it has two great benefits. And one of them is this concept of ownership of the technology, as well as the second benefit being verification of the outputs of that technology. And those two concepts can be really valuable for any high margin business that depends on technology to add value. And as somebody that's worked in financial services, it's a high margin business. A lot of the technology that we produce uh, adds a lot of value and being able to attribute ownership and verify the outcomes of that can can create some very interesting use cases. So where I'm most interested in right now is how you can verify the outcome of certain events that happen in the world and attribute ownership to individuals of the um, the outcomes of that. So in this case, I'm looking at future events like an earnings event and how a company is reporting their financials, verifying the outcome of that, and have people have the rights to um, a contract associated with that earnings event. But that's not specific to company earnings. There's tons of interesting information out there in the world that has value, whether it's um, did a did a influencer post on Twitter for some company that they're advertising for? Like, did that event occur? It did. How many followers were liking it? How, what's the value of that? Let's actually pay them out as they actually interact with, uh, or as they're actually causing more engagement. So like, how do you get that data on chain and then enable automatic payment systems on top of it? There's really interesting stuff going on with weather data and getting that on chain and enabling new types of insurance or investment strategies around it. There's interesting real estate data. There's interesting geolocation data. There's interesting obvious financial use cases of getting data on chain and creating these types of contracts that I think right now we're just scratching the surface. Most of people's interaction with blockchain is by buying and selling some crypto that's on an exchange with this theoretical concept of value propositions coming down the line. And I'm most interested in like creating what that value proposition actually is. And I think that there's just a ton of potential by, from my perspective of working within the data and technology space within, um, within finance for, for it to have a pretty dramatic impact in the way that we think about financial markets over the next one, two, five, 10, 20 years. And so I want to, I want to take a bit of a risk in my career pathing and go into something that I have some conviction about that I'm passionate about and, and dive into a full speed. So I think that chain metrics is my first foray into what's going to be like a longer term, um, a longer term evolution of how technology, finance, social, and law start interweaving when it comes to leveraging some of the powers uh, of, of blockchain and smart contracts. 
You, men- you mentioned to me previously in another conversation about how you see the benefit of uh, of creating a company on the blockchain in this way of as being that you don't need a, a team of engineers in a way that you would if you're creating the, the same thing kind of on a, in traditional ways. Um, it's, it can just be you someone who's who's clearly very adept at, at, at with with python and and the, and the required technical skills um but you can do it yourself pretty much and you've got the reliability and you've got the trust and you've got the safety of knowing that it's that it's all good i mean do you foresee a future world where um there would be you know you're you're, you're not the only one obviously you'll be in a you'll be in a, in a very high percentage of 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 people um who can who can do this but you're not the only one who can do this do you do you see a future world where anyone who wants to start a company really is going to do it on the on the blockchain because the startup costs are so minimal and the and the potential scale is 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 the rapid growth to scale has the has the potential to be so fast do you see a future world where all companies are on the on the blockchain particularly the ones that have been started after a certain date um i i think that's that's a um, a bold statement to make. So I don't know if I'm going to go that far, but I will say that, yes, there are benefits of if you're creating something new that requires like high uptime, high dependency of the underlying infrastructure and system that hosting your software on the blockchain gets a lot of that for free. It does add new problems um that you may not necessarily have within traditional technology like the immutability of a contract you can't go and hot fix and necessarily patch a piece of software in production the same that you the same way that you historically would but yeah like there are there are a lot of benefits that if you are starting something new you do want to go into something that's touching on um contracts between multiple people and we engage in contracts all the time, whether it is a broker dealer contract, whether it's two parties buying and selling a house, whether it's a contract between seeing a piece of content and getting served an ad. These type of contracts we interact with all the time and being able to create a system that has a whole ecosystem around it. Um, it, it enables a lot of, uh, there's a lot of benefits for a technologist to create something that already has a lot of uh, a lot of pieces that you get for free by doing development within the blockchain. Where we are right now in 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 2021, do you think the fact that you're doing this on the blockchain closes any doors? Is there does it keep out a perhaps a less sophisticated level of of customer, or is it is it equally accessible to to everyone in the way as a non uh, off the chain? Um, oh yeah, no, absolutely. Doing? There's still a ton of barriers of entry into doing anything in the blockchain. The I can't say the barriers of entry for doing development on the blockchain have reduced dramatically over the last couple of years. Like anybody that, like any engineer that may be listening to this or anybody that's writing code and wants to get involved with the blockchain, I would highly recommend go to Remix. It's an in-browser IDE that you don't need to set up your environment. You don't have to worry about compiling. You don't need to even need to worry about deployment. Uh, if you go to Remix, it's it's similar to like um, RStudio or Jupyter Lab or Jupyter Notebooks, where you're doing the development within the browser and it just runs in the back end, but that back end is hosted within the, the Remix infrastructure. Mm. Um, and so like from a development perspective, it's come a long way. Where So, so that's made it easy. What about, uh, sorry, what about for the customer perspective? Yes, that's what I was going to say. 
the from the actual user's perspective, there is still a huge friction point. So I create something on the blockchain. Let's say I want to create a beat on, um, let's say AWS's revenue or Amazon's revenue segment for AWS for a future quarter. I create a beat and a miss token. Somebody can go online and buy that beat and miss token. Um, the first part is like, how do they even buy a token? What does that actually mean? Well, they have to have a wallet. A common wallet provider is MetaMask. And somebody that only has bought in crypto on Gemini or Coinbase doesn't actually have a, a, a hot wallet like MetaMask. So they have to go and install a MetaMask wallet. They create an address. What really is an address? Um, and that we talk about it a lot when you, in crypto space, or for somebody that's never actually interacted with the blockchain, the concept of an address holding money in it in a wallet and then paying gas fees to purchase a token that has another address that I have to hold on to in my wallet. And then when the company reports exercising that token to get it converted back into a stable coin, like all of those words that I just said are completely new concepts to a lot of people. And the friction that building something on the blockchain that natively uses all of these things is a lot. And a large part of creating any sort of platform for users on the blockchain involves pedagogy and actually teaching users how they can actually interact with the blockchain. And that's like a large part of like getting something like chain metrics to be able to be used and, and um, uh, adopted. And I, I actually enjoy that. I like teaching. I like showing people how to do something for the first time. And so like that, that'll be an interesting problem to solve is how do I do that at scale? How to how to hold in a kind of automated way? How to hold the hand of your customer to 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 take them through that process? Totally. And what like I've I've seen the development of solving that problem for developers play out over the last couple of years. I think now that and there's a lot of interesting like platforms and UX design patterns that are starting to do the same thing for actual customers. Still very early stages of that. Um, and so I want to be on the ground floor as that evolves and be able to be flexible and adaptive to jump on new opportunities as they present themselves. Because I don't have all the answers. I just, I can see all of the possibilities and I want to be in a, a space where I can start connecting the dots as soon as something jumps in front of me. One more final question from me. Um, being the Alternative Data Podcast, what... Uh, does this all mean for alternative data and you can you can answer that how you want in terms of your immediate your immediate project versus kind of the the future future uses how is this going to affect the alternative data world kind of from tomorrow to five years from now to 10 years from now in your in your view i don't know if it'll play out but something that i like to imagine plays out is that right now your large institutional investors hold a lot of the cards for monetizing alternative data because just because you're good at forecasting doesn't mean you're good at sizing portfolio construction uh, and so a lot of your really good data providers have to sell data to a larger fund in order to monetize it even though they themselves might be really good at kpi forecasting um, so, but if there was an opportunity for a data provider to monetize their data directly in a market just designed for KPI forecasting, and then allow a larger fund to be able to monetize those forecasts in portfolio construction and sizing, I think that it allows the value proposition and a lot of like the power dynamics within alternative data to start breaking down. Now, 
I don't think that that's going to play on as dramatically as that. But I do think that having a well-functioning, high-liquidity prediction market enables a lot of your sellers right now to start be also become buyers in in this like intermediate stage of uh forecast monetization um i think yeah so i think also so, so, like, so just to just to break that down quickly they a, a provider right now of credit card transaction information at the moment they're having to sell it to a hedge fund who's the only ones who are able to actually action it um take their data extract the alpha from it and make the bet and gain off it. Whereas perhaps a market like the one you're creating allows a provider, the owner of the data to, if they're, if they're savvy enough to, to be able to interrogate the data themselves, then they can go and act on it by, by making a bet at your, at your site. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's, yeah, that's one, that's one idea. Another, another element that I really like to think about is with, the amount of liquidity that's been injected into the market over my adult lifetime since I graduated in 2010, but started like I, I was I was in school studying econ in 2008, um, has caused a lot of distortions in asset valuations across asset classes, and we even see a stronger detachment of fundamentals over the last like year as COVID and the, the continuation of liquidity injection into the markets uh, has played out. And creating a anchor in an asset class that ties um, valuations to, a, to the fundamentals and at least allows somebody to just focus on the fundamentals and monetize that and allow this like the, the equity market or different asset classes to be influenced by um, various different factors that have nothing to do with the companies themselves, but are more thematic overarching market themes uh, to play out it within the equity tranche. And so if there's some way to keep, uh, if there's some way to really capture the fundamentals in predicted future cash flows of companies to be able to be well-functioning, that it at least creates some sort of anchor uh, for um, some of the craziness that we've seen within inequity markets over the last uh, over the last year. Fantastic! It's quite a vision, Michael. It's a lot of there's a lot of future in there. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll see. But it's fun. We're in the future. Like make the future now. The future doesn't have to be tomorrow. So let's just engage in. You left Citadel to create the future, so I believe it for sure. It's um, I just need to, I need to catch up. I need to keep up. Is the answer? If you want to keep up, I'd encourage you join the Discord on Chained Metrics. Um, so if you if you uh, don't have Discord, uh, if you haven't used it before, it's uh, similar to Slack. It's really popular within the crypto space. Get on there. Like, and I'd love to be able to show you a couple of things. Also, ChainedMetrics.com. That's the platform where you can buy and sell KPIs. Uh, log in, create an account. Um, we are giving away C metric right now for free, just our native token that a lot of, uh, that we're allowing the initial markets to be able to bought and be bought and sold in. Um, and it's a way for you to play with a paper portfolio. Um, right. so if you haven't used the blockchain at all in, in any like actual interaction before, it's a great first step and foray into the space without having to worry about, um, losing any money, uh, and just testing stuff out. And also if you're interested in alternative data, it's a great little bridge of something that you're passionate about, but also maybe like getting a little bit more involved within the crypto space as well, which is, um, interesting stuff going there. So and I'm, I'm more than happy to help anybody out. If they come into the discord, there's no dumb questions. 
Um, and I'm trying to figure stuff out as I go along. So I love just brainstorming like this or in any other forum. So uh, you can find me on Discord or, or um, within uh, the Chainmetrics platform. Fantastic. Well, Michael, thanks so much for for um, walking me through your Citadel time and and your thoughts around uh, around engineering and the challenges therein, and then and then walking me through this this very futuristic and exciting project with with Chain Metrics, which is just just uh, beginning to take off. Um, and yeah, thanks so much for for joining me. And I will be watching, and maybe I'll come and join you on Discord, and I'll be watching with interest as as, as things progress. Awesome, Mark. Thanks for having me.